Hey there, welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Nari. I like to talk health and well-being every Monday and Thursday. I've been doing it for two and a half years now, over 260 episodes in the Happy Habit Archive. So lots to peruse if you have any interest in that. And if you have subscribed, thank you very much. If you've shared some of the episodes, thank you indeed. Also a reminder, available in softback ebook and audiobook formats, my new book, Happy Habits for Mind and Body. And uh, that's available uh, via Amazon if you want to have a look at that. Details in the programme notes for this episode. And talking of books, I happened upon a terrific new book entitled Get Off the Couch Before It's Too Late with the subtitle The Whys and Wherefores of Exercise. It's written by Hugh Bethel and beautifully illustrated by Tony Goff. And uh, I'm delighted Hugh joins me on the podcast today. Uh, Good afternoon to you, Hugh. Thank you for joining me on the Happy Habit Podcast. My pleasure. Now, Hugh, just to clarify, you are a retired general practitioner, uh, clearly uh, based on uh, this book. You have an interest in exercise medicine, but that interest started many years ago when you trained at one point as a cardiologist in Charing Cross Hospital. Can you tell us a little bit more about the genesis of your interest in exercise medicine? Yeah, well, you're very well informed that I did indeed uh, pick up my first interest in exercise is treatment uh, when I was working at Charing Cross Hospital as a cardiac registrar for a slightly eccentric cardiologist called Peter Nixon. Now in those days you must understand that if somebody had a heart attack they were put to bed for anything up to six weeks and uh, told to take it quietly for the rest of their, their lives and um, it, it was just beginning uh, it had been started in, the idea had been started in the states that this may not be the best thing to do for people with heart problems you might they might benefit from getting active and uh, my boss used to send his heart patients down to the local gymnasium run by a, an olympic weightlifting coach called al murray and that was where i first introduced the idea that exercise could be helpful for people with heart disease and uh, i've sort of lived with the idea that exercise is underused uh, as a valuable treatment and a prevention for a very wide variety of illnesses. And this was really counter to the the zeitgeist at the time as far as the medical advice was concerned. This was something new, really. It was pretty, it was pretty new. Uh, the, the Americans sort of, in the 60s, there's a guy called Hellerstein who'd uh, uh, formulated an idea for rehabilitating people who he thought would get better um, quicker if they started exercising rather than sitting around uh, waiting for the good Lord to take them away. So tell me then, what effect did an exercise program have on cardiology patients or patients that had experienced cardiac incidents or heart attacks or strokes or whatever? Uh, well, it, it first, first it got them over the acute attacks. It was very good for, them, for their morale because they got going instead of being sitting around in a chair for the rest of their lives. Um, and over time, a number of controlled trials were performed to see what the actual benefits were. Well, the main benefit was that uh, for people to take part in active exercise-based cardiac rehabilitation after a heart attack, uh, their uh, uh, mortality over the following five years was reduced by 25%. So that was a big impact. Uh, but it took a number of trials and a lot of people 
uh, involved before that uh, figure could be reached. And, and it's, it's a figure that's held good since. If we touch upon the negative impacts, let's say, of a sedentary lifestyle, a lifestyle which generally contributes to people presenting with cardiac problems later on in life, um, what are those negative impacts as far as not just um, heart problems are concerned, but as far as other chronic illnesses are concerned? Well, you're actually right to identify that. It, it is the sedentary lifestyle, the lack of adequate exercise, that is uh, really one of the big causes one of the pandemics we suffer from uh, in the Western world, and that is the frailty of old age. And the frailty of old age is the end result of all of the conditions that are brought on by inadequate activity earlier in life. Things like obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, heart disease, strokes, dementia, Parkinson's disease, and as I say, ultimately leading to frailty. So I got very obsessed with the idea that uh, much of the problems that we face in our health service today is preventable if we could get people to take exercise. The um, general uh, thoughts from the politicians and anyone else who's got any contact, sorry, any comment to make about this is that we ought to be putting more care into, more money into caring and caring. So my view is that we shouldn't be doing that. We should show up more active so they never needed care and care homes. Well, it seems that not just the, the government in the UK, but a lot, a lot of governments around the world, particularly in the Western world, seem to have a reactive approach to uh, medical care rather than what you seem to espouse, that is a, a proactive approach to medical care. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, 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 the problems of old age, which are multiple, are largely preventable. I think a good way of looking at it is the difference between health span and lifespan. And the lifespan is how long you live. Health span is how long you live in good health. And there's a very big discrepancy between them. And the discrepancy is largest for those who are least active. Uh, and about 20% of the average person's life at the end of uh, their days is spent in poor health. That's a, that's a terrible business. And if you are concerned by the queues of ambulances, outside hospitals, outside any departments, you can track it through to the fact that there are lots of people in the hospital who can't be sent home. They can't be sent home because they're not strong enough or fit enough to look after themselves. They can't go into care homes because there aren't enough places. If there were enough places, there aren't enough people to look after them. Uh, and there's all a preventable problem. It doesn't need to happen to the extent it does. So the argument you're making is, is similar to what I've read elsewhere in that being old doesn't necessarily have to lead to frailty. We can take control of that situation, but we need to do so earlier on in life so that we can lay the, the foundations for a healthier, longer life, uh, not tainted by frailty in, in our final days, our final years. Absolutely. Yes, you're absolutely right. Ideally, you'd start in childhood. Um, but uh, there's not much move in governmental circles for improving the activity of children. Um, and of course, the, the modern developments like the screen uh, are militating against kids being active. And uh, the government doesn't help. It's, uh, it, it actually promotes the selling off of school playing fields, for instance, and where school playing fields have been 
sold off and there'd be local objections, the government has overruled the objections and allowed the sales to go ahead. Uh, so that, that's the age to start with that. The problem is that during people's working life, they don't really have the time for doing that much exercise. But if they've developed a habit for it when they were younger, they're much more likely to be able to pick it up once they've got a bit more time later in life. So maybe the target audience for getting people more active is those in early retirement. And if they aren't more active from a younger age, what are those chronic diseases then we're talking about? We're talking about heart problems and hypertension, etc. Yes, I mean, it starts with obesity and type 2 diabetes, which is both of which are increasing uh, exponentially at the moment. Uh, and it goes on to all the associated problems, as, as, as you say, hypertension, high blood pressure, strokes, heart disease, uh, and dementia too. Uh, people who are physically active, it doesn't, they're not prevented altogether from becoming demented, but it probably delays the, the onset of dementia by about 10 years. It's a very, very powerful tool. Uh, can I quote, quote something that the Medical Office of Health uh, said in 2009? He said, the benefits of regular physical activity on health, longevity and well-being easily surpass the effectiveness of any drugs or other medical treatment. Um, that was so in 2009. It's just as true in 2022. So essentially... It really is within our control. That's what I'm reading from that. Yes, I think that, that by and large, the older population have very little incentive to be active. Uh, they're not informed properly, I think, of the ill effects of being sedentary. Um, and the opportunities for, provide, for giving them exercise are not by any means optimised. Uh, and, and doctors aren't particularly encouraged to get their patients exercising either. It's a uh, uh, you know, doctors uh, pay, partly depends upon the various pieces of advice and treatment they give their, uh, their customers, but uh, encouraging exercise isn't amongst them. You mentioned obesity there a couple of moments ago. Where do you sit in the argument in relation to obesity about it being a disease? Is it a disease or is it, again, something that is within our control? Well, that's a very polarizing question, and, and uh, I personally, my particular particular poll that I that I stick to is that it, it, it is not a disease; it's a lifestyle choice. Now, that's very unfair because for some people it's an easy uh, lifestyle choice to avoid, and for others it's much more difficult because there are genetic effects on whether or not you have a tendency to easy satiation from eating. Uh, and those who are easily satisfied with what they're eating are much less likely to uh, put on weight. So it is more difficult for for for, um, for uh, people with the wrong genetics. Um, it's very difficult for them to maintain a normal weight or, or avoid putting on weight. Uh, but it's not impossible. It, it, and in the end, if someone believes that that, that they are, it is entirely without their uh, their, their control, whether or not they're overweight, then they're never going to lose weight uh, by their own efforts. And, and in the end, if people are going to be a normal weight, lose weight or stay at a normal weight. They've got to make some effort to do so. And of course, then to complicate matters further, some people can be slim, but can be very unhealthy, even though they're slim. They can indeed. And, and, and people who have a very low BMI, that's a, a, a measure of, uh, of body weight, um, are 
at greater risk than those with a normal BMI. But that may be partly because the people with very low BMI tend to be smokers. Okay, so we know we need to be active and we know that if we're not active, if we are indulging in a sedentary lifestyle, then we're at an increased risk of uh, all of these cardiovascular problems, neurological problems, mental health problems, etc. So what do you advise? What do you prescribe, given your history uh, as a cardiologist and a GP over the decades? What would you advise uh, are the best ways to get off the couch? Uh, that's a very good question again and I tend not to tell people what to do because I think uh, people have to choose their own path they have to choose what exercise that they would enjoy what physical activity they would enjoy and it's no use uh, sending somebody off to the gymnasium if they hate it they'll just give it up Um, people must choose what they want to do and in the end for some people it's choosing what they least (laughs) hate doing see what I mean but for most most people can find a physical activity that they enjoy um, and from I suppose the most popular exercise of physical activity has to be walking which is what we do um, but people walk too little and too slowly uh, for most people to uh, to benefit their health so you're suggesting something as rudimentary as walking, as long as we're doing it on a regular enough basis and we do it at a brisk enough pace, that would be sufficient to start to at least exchange from going from a sedentary lifestyle to at least embracing some degree of activity. Absolutely. Any level of activity is good. And curiously enough, the, the biggest percentage improvement you get in, in health outcomes is from starting doing starting from going to doing nothing, just doing a bit. Uh, and the curve, as it were, flattens off as time goes on. Clearly, the more you do, the more benefit you get. Um, but the biggest benefit is when you're just getting going from doing nothing. When doing that, when embarking on some degree of activity, the the advice uh, that you seem to espouse and other people that I've read and come in contact with is that one should track one's activity and one's progress. Because I, I think I, I saw a read that you had mentioned elsewhere that people have a some kind of misconception about the level of activity that they engage in whenever they're asked. People deceive themselves into thinking they're actually much more active than they are. But when they drill down and when their activity is tracked and monitored, they actually don't exercise quite as often as they think they do. That's entirely true. It's true of all sorts of aspects. I think I first encountered this as a doctor when we asked people how much they smoked. And of course, they smoked about twice as much as they said they smoked. You ask what they eat, and they eat probably about uh, twice as or one and a half times as much as they think they do. And when you ask how much they exercise, well, they're exercising about two thirds as much as they think they do. Uh, and when you measure it, this is what you find. If you look at the figures that are produced from questionnaire studies, they don't look too bad. Perhaps 30, 40 percent of the population are meeting the government's recommendations. Uh, if you actually measure it, it's nearer between six and 10 percent who are meeting the government's recommendations. It's a social desirability bias, is what it's called. Uh, it's the idea that uh, you're, you're better than uh, maybe you really are. And of course, we apply this to other areas of our life, as you have said. Um, Could I ask you, as far as your own experience as a GP is concerned, 
Um, and you mentioned the National Health Service there and the government and their failure really to meet their obligations as far as getting the message out there is concerned. Has there been any change in recent years or certainly since the, the 1970s when whenever you were, were first embarking on your interest in exercise medicine as a cardiologist, has there been any change for the better as far as people embracing activity is concerned? I know we have access to more food now than ever and more distractions than ever before, but do you see any hope as far as the future is concerned? Oh, there, there has to be a hope, but it does require political action to, to make it happen. Um, the, the level of physical activity now is probably considerably lower than it would have been in the days when people earning their crust depended upon a certain level of physical activity, which we don't have now. It's also lower now, particularly for young people, than it was before the introduction of all the screens which uh, which they get so attached. Um, if you look at people's responses to questionnaires, there was a slight increase over the two decades until about 2010, uh, but it's been going down since then. And if you look at life expectancy, uh, which was increasing steadily from, well, over the last 50 or 60 years, that also has stalled over the past five or 10 years. And in fact, it's probably reduced a bit uh, in the last uh, five years. Everything's a little bit distorted by the pandemic, but uh, at the moment, things are not looking great. Um, and maybe the pandemic has made it look a bit worse than it really is. Do you, do you think that's the case? Do you think the pandemic had a, a worldwide negative effect on, on people's, not just their physical well-being, but also their mental well-being? Well, that's, that's certainly true. I mean, it was a disaster as far as socialisation was concerned, particularly people who uh, live otherwise relatively solitary lives. Uh, one of the things that exercise can do is it provides an opportunity for many people to indulge in whatever they wish to do with a group of other people. And that's... Uh, a very social activity. We have a very active local walking for wellness um, community. We have a lot of uh, lot of a lot of different walks available, and they will attract forty or fifty people. Okay, well, that's forty or fifty people interacting with a large number of other people who they might not otherwise uh, do, and uh, that has to be good for their mental well-being. Well, I, I think it's a great idea. I have spoken before on this podcast about my mother who retired a couple of years ago and she would have been very active in the workplace whenever she was working. And then I suggested when she did retire that she continue to embrace some degree of activity and she started walking every day. So she's been doing it. She reminds me all the time that she walks every day for about an hour and a half, which is terrific. Could I ask you, though, when it comes to exercise, uh, people always or often use the excuse that, oh, they're afraid of over-exercising. Does that phenomenon even exist? Uh, it does in a few fanatics, but an over-exerciser is a very different sort of person to your average and there is no no danger at all of the average person coming to any harm from exercising as much as they want to um, exercise addiction does exist um, but it's it, it's very unusual and it will involve people in many many hours a week uh, exerting themselves often uh, to their limits you don't see that very much and you certainly don't see it for average citizens 
Tell me this, Hugh. Do you exercise regularly yourself, or do you have a chosen exercise that you enjoy doing over over? Well, well, I, I do exercise. I, I play golf and I, and I play tennis. What I really like to do is to run. I'm a, I'm a runner, and uh, one of the distressing things about my running these days is that whereas as a younger man I was a very very moderate runner, I used to come you know about a third of the way up the field, but nowadays I win in my age group. And I win because there's no one else running. No one of my age, at any rate. And that's a great pity. I think it's a very, very good exercise. Nice and easy and quick and cheap. Uh, and it gets the job done quickly. And yes, as you say, it's free because all you need to do is just put on a pair of runners and uh, run outside. And uh, I quite often run, uh, I generally run on grass myself, uh, but um, I, I enjoy running, although I don't run great distances i won't bore you too much and i won't bore the listeners but uh, i started uh, competing in triathlons about five or six years ago so i swim i cycle land i run so i do a little bit of each but i can definitely attest to that feeling of uh, of well-being and uh, not just uh, physical but the, that mental feeling of well-being uh, which was certainly enhanced during the pandemic whenever i seemed to exercise more than ever so i can attest to the value and the benefit of doing that well done you well done you're an excellent son if you've got your mum walking regularly you've done all that you need it's a fascinating book as i said it's beautifully illustrated by tony goff can i just give the title again it's get off the couch before it's too late with the subtitle the whys and wherefores of exercise it's written by retired gp hugh bethel hugh thank you so much for taking the time for joining me on the happy habit podcast today well, thank you very much for, for inviting me. I feel greatly privileged to be able to share my obsessions with all your, with all your listeners. Mm-hmm.